Back in uh, 1973, I started following college football for the first time. And the best player in that particular season was a guy named John Capaletti, who was a running back for Penn State University. And so because I was just following for the first time, he became my hero. I love John Capaletti and followed his career. Um, oh, I don't know why the pictures are taken off on us here. <laughs> Let's get back to Capaletti if we could. But he just had an amazing year. Just, just ran over everybody and um, became you know, the, the greatest player of the season. And as a result, at the end of the year, he was given what's called the Heisman Trophy, which is a trophy. Why don't we just put it out for now so it doesn't distract people and we'll figure out what's going wrong. Anyways, this is a Heisman Trophy. He received the Heisman Trophy, which is what's given to someone when they're chosen as the best football player of the year. Many of you are probably aware of that. And so at the end of the season, when the winner is chosen, they then are invited to come to New York City. And there's a big black tie tux dinner that's done. And uh, everyone's, you know, in their best uh, gowns. And it's like VIPs of society. It's usually hosted, actually, by the vice president of the United States. It's a big deal. So just imagine the, a college kid, okay, 21, 22 years old, having to give a speech in front of all these world VIPs, right, all in their tuxedos and dresses. I mean, talk about a nerve-wracking moment that would be for a young man. Well, it's generally uh, agreed that in the 85 years or so the Heisman Trophy's been given out, that Capaletti gave the best speech ever given. What's unusual about his speech is this. He walked into that podium, into that pulpit. He walked up to that podium without a prepared speech. He walked with an index card with one word on it. And that word was the name of his brother, Joey. And in front of all these people, in a nerve-wracking moment where you'd want to, oh, I hope I don't blow this and embarrass myself in front of all these world leaders, etc. He then inspired by that one word, poured out his love for his brother. Because his brother, Joey, 11 years old at the time, was in the midst of dying from leukemia. And what Capaletti said through tears and a choked up throat was that, you know, I battle a few Saturdays in the fall to win a few football games, but my brother battles every moment of every day for his life. And he's the bravest one I've ever met. He's my hero, and I dedicate this trophy to him. And as he gave this, he, again, if I was going to be in front of all these people, I would have a prepared script of some kind <laughs> and to just go off the cuff. How can you do that with just one word? You can do that when you allow yourself to tap into the depth of what, who and what you love. His love for Joey was so deep, he didn't need a prepared speech. He didn't need to think that all through. It just poured out of him. And I, I, because of copyright, I'm not allowed to show you the video. But if you saw it, what you would see is this young man crying and talking and, and convulsing as he pours out his deep love for his brother Joey. Two years after that, Joey Capaletti died at the age of 13. A year after that, they made a movie about his life. It was called Something for Joey. Maybe some of you remember it. Something for Joey. And that's what love does. When it loves, it can't, love can't help 
but pour out and give to the ones it loves. True love. And we saw that on display in a way that most young men would feel embarrassed. There was no embarrassment or shame that night. He didn't care what any of people thought as he just poured out his love for his brother. Uninhibited. Held back, not held back at all. We're going to see that same kind of outpouring in our passage this morning. We're in a sermon series through the Gospel of Mark. It's called Jesus More Than Enough. And this morning, my sermon I've entitled Something for Jesus because we're going to see a woman pour out her love for Jesus in the same way that John Capaletti poured out uninhibited his love for his brother, not caring what anyone thought. And I wonder how many of us are so tapped into our hearts, so tapped into our love for God or for our spouse or for whoever, that we'd be willing to pour it out at any time, not caring what anyone thinks. Are we that tapped into our love, into our hearts? I hope we are. Go ahead and open, if you would, to Mark chapter 14. It's page 710 if you're using the Black Bible under your chairs. Page number 710. Now as you turn there, just to kind of get us up to speed again, we are now going to enter into these last three chapters of Mark. We've been at Mark over a year now. But these last three chapters are the most intense chapters, and they are just the, the unstoppable march to the cross for Jesus. It's just going to be every single thing is, is all moving towards this ultimate moment where love is put on its most uninhibited display, a naked Jesus hanging on a cross for our sins, for the very ones who put him there. And that first awful step begins in our passage this morning. We're in Mark chapter 14, verse 1. Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. All right, the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread, those, that actually was, were two different things that had been, in Jesus' days, put together. It was, the most, it was a week-long celebration, feast in Jerusalem. Everyone would head on up to pilgrimage to Jerusalem. It was the most anticipated week of the year for all the Jews. Jews from all over Israel would come and would celebrate and commemorate how God had delivered his people Israel, as we know the story, right? Out of bondage in Egypt, under the terrible hand of the Egyptians, and, and out into freedom. And, and that entire week commemorates this freedom of Israel and reminds Israel that she's meant to be free and not under oppression, which is what is happening at this moment in Israel's history, right? Except now it's not Egyptians, it's Romans. So this was a week that the Romans weren't exactly thrilled with. Because it was a week of Israel saying, we're supposed to be free. We're God's people. Matter of fact, several years before our incident this morning, there had been, during Passover, a huge riot for, net, for freedom, Israel's freedom. Huge riot. Thousands were trampled in the chaos. Because you need to understand that during Passover, during this time of year, Israel's population swelled by five. It normally was somewhere between 30, 40, 50,000, and it would be 200, 250,000 people in this walled city. So if a riot breaks out, it is, it is awful. And that's what had happened years ago. And remember, the Romans don't like unrest. And that hadn't gone well for the, for the Roman prefect of that time, the governor of that time. So ever since that riot, 
Ever since that riot, every year the Roman governor, whoever it happens to be, who normally is in Caesarea, nice by the coast in his palace, instead, oh, here's Passover week, he and, and with more Roman troops would head on in, inland and go to Jerusalem just to be there to make sure that these Jews don't get out of hand during this Passover uh, week. And so this case, it's Pilate, Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, and, all, and some extra troops, and they're in this city. And that explains verse 2. Not during, we want to get these, we've been seeing from the beginning that the religious leaders want to arrest Jesus. He's messing up their plans. But they say, verse 2, not during the festival. The people may riot. We don't want that to happen. That won't go good for us. So they're going to wait till after the festival to see if they can somehow get Jesus. Remember, Jesus is very popular. And if they try to get him during all of this and all these people are there, there'd be a riot. So that's why they don't want to do it. They're going to wait unless an opportunity comes along. But for now, they're planning to wait. In the meantime, while they're waiting, during the Passover, as it's coming up, Jesus and his disciples have been spending that week in Jerusalem, uh, in the temple during the day with all the crowds, but then at night, because it's just too crowded there, they go two miles east out to Bethany. Here's a picture of Bethany. It's up on the top of that hill. Oh, you can't really see it on this washed out screen, unfortunately. But there is a city up at the top of that hill. <laughs> Trust me, it's called Bethany. And... Um, and so every day after the, the activities in the uh, temple and in Jerusalem, they would, they would head over and they would most likely stay in the house of their friends who lived in Bethany. You've heard of them, Mary, Martha, Lazarus. You've heard of those guys, right? And he would stay there at night. And that's where we pick up what's going on with Jesus. He actually isn't in their house, but he's been going to Bethany every single night. On this particular night in our passage, he's in a different house. Let's talk about that. Verse 3. While he was in Bethany, that's Jesus, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. And she broke the jar, and she poured the perfume on his head. And some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Okay, let's just think about this scene. This is a very powerful scene. So Jesus has been going, as I said, probably to Mary Martha's house every night. But this night, he's at Simon the leper's house. Now, he must not have leprosy anymore. They wouldn't be at his house. And so what may have happened, maybe? Maybe Jesus healed him of his leprosy. And maybe they're throwing a, a party in his bed. We do know from John they are throwing a party. And Jesus is the guest of honor. And so at this special, we also know it's a special dinner because they're reclining. At a normal dinner, they would sit at a special feast or dinner. Then all the men would recline on their left elbows and they would have their feet out to the back. And they would all be like this around the table. So this is a special dinner in honor of Jesus in the house of Simon the leper. We're going to see in a moment that Mary, Martha, and Lazarus are there. And it's just men around this table because that's how it is in the ancient, that's how it was in the ancient Near East. David Garland in his commentary adds this, this note here. A social divide existed between male space and female space in the ancient world. Men and women didn't intermingle even in the home. Women only crossed into the public male world to wait on men and then they would retreat. So around this table are just men and the women are off in another room 
having waited on them, they're eating, they're done. They're just off in the other room. And yet, we read that somehow a woman, a woman in this moment, spontaneously, appear, apparently, grabs an alabaster jar of perfume, leaves the room that she's in with the women and goes into that dining room. We need to, to, to understand the scandal of just that. This spontaneous, scandalous moment. She should not be in that room with those men. Right off the bat, there'd be murmuring. I could see the women in the other room going, what is she doing? What is she doing? She's embarrassing us. And remember, this is a, a communal society. She's not just embarrassing us. She's embarrassing the whole village. This is, this is an, an, a nightmare for them. But she goes. And then it says she goes, and she's got to make her way around the table. Remember, Jesus is on his left arm. His feet would be behind him. He goes, she goes around behind uh, Jesus, and it says that she pours, she breaks the jar of very expensive perfume and pours it on him. And we don't comprehend just how she is breaking rules here. She is going way outside. She, she, this is completely inappropriate, what she's doing. And she's actually doing more than just pouring on his head. That's all Mark tells us. But look at how John relates the story when he tells it in his gospel. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. There you go. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table. Lazarus is there with Jesus at the table with other men from Bethany. Lazarus' hometown. Then Mary, ah, we find out who this woman is that Mark doesn't name. Mary took a pint of pure nard and expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet. So not only his head, but she poured it on his feet and then wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. This is an extravagant offering. But it's a scandalous offering too. And I don't want us to miss that. Now listen, you're a well-taught church. For years and years, we've been studying our Bible. So you tell me, what do you know about Lazarus? Anybody? He had died and been risen from the dead. How long had he been in the tomb? Four days, which means he had started to decompose. And Jesus raised from the dead. What do you, and, and that episode happened not too long before this one. What do you think would be the feeling then around the table as Jesus is, is, is reclining with Lazarus there? I don't think it would be that. You guys are staring at me. Come on. Your brother and sister just got raised from the tomb. How would you feel at that table? Come on, you guys. Wake up. Wouldn't you be like, oh, my goodness. Lazarus is alive. I mean, I mean I've been spending weeks praying for his, his, his disease or whatever he had. And he died. I saw him. I'm having dinner with Lazarus. It would be an amazing, and that we miss that when we just read the scripture like it's a cadaver. Get into the story. Lazarus is at this table. It's an incredible moment. What spurred on Mary to, to, to go in and, and break these cultural norms? I think she's, she's still overcome with what God has done in raising her brother. What would you do if the person who raised your brother out of a tomb showed up for dinner? Her gratitude and her love for her Lord knows no bounds. How about our gratitude and love? Does it have any bounds? 
Does it stay within the bounds of what's expected of good Christians? I wonder. Now, what do we know about Mary? You go ahead, tell me. What do we know about Mary? Well, she's in the scripture three times. No. She sat at Jesus' feet listening to him. She's a worshiper. There's one other time, Luke 11, John 11. Yeah, that's, that's the sitting at his feet to, to listen. There's three times we meet Mary in Scripture. Three times. One, when he's at the feet, of, she's li- listening at the feet of Jesus, Luke 10. Another time when Jesus came, when Lazarus was in the tomb, and she runs out to him and says, if you'd been here, he wouldn't have died. She laments to him, and now pouring perfume on him. Three times we meet Mary. You know what the three have in common? All three times she's at his feet. She's at his feet all three times. Submitted and surrendered to him. All three have another thing in common. They all go against the social norms of Israel. She's not supposed to be at the foot of a rabbi, only men. She's not supposed to run in public up to a man. And she's not supposed to be in that dining room with men. And as we saw the response, right? Verse 4, why this indignant waste, right? Could have been sold over a year's wages, money given to the poor, and they rebuked her harshly. The Greek there is actually a word that literally means the snort of a a horse. So they're like, I mean, this is, she's repulsive to them in this moment. And I just wonder, you know, where these people are seeing a woman breaking the law. Jesus is seeing a worshiper loving her Lord. And I just wish we could get eyes like Jesus instead of living in our little boxes of what's proper as we define it. Anyways, what a moment. So she pours out and she comes in and she cannot hold back she can't hold back, but these people are not happy with what she's doing. As I said, said indignantly to one another, why this waste? In John's gospel, it tells us that Judas was the first one to say this. Judas Iscariot, the guy who manages the money, why this waste? I'm sure he had figured out how much it, and he figures out just looking at it. Could have been sold for more than, you know, calculates real fast. This isn't practical. This isn't even religious, Right? Could have been money given to the poor. At Passover, you're supposed to give elaborate gifts to the poor. Ah, this could have been our gift. Judas is the one, and then everyone else jumps in on it because that's the way it works with judgment. We, you know, it's, it tends to take off like wildfire. And now they're all in on it. But Jesus doesn't let it go. As strong as they are in their denunciation of her behavior, which is probably, I um, guess some commentators said this, I would agree. They're probably thinking she's an exhibitionist. She's just out to get attention. Which often happens whenever anybody kind of goes beyond the norms. Oh yeah, they're just out for attention. Well, Jesus doesn't think so. He cuts in very quickly and, and just as strongly in the imperative, and which doesn't always, and leave her alone. Arist imperative, which is a way of saying this is a strong rebuke of them. 
Leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? Literally, why are you causing her trouble? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor, you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. Well, that sounds kind of self-serving. What's up with that? Well, she did what she could. She poured perfume on my body before and prepared for my burial. And truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Oh, yeah, one thing I've failed to mention to you is that this perfume, it is indeed very expensive. Pure nard. Not just any kind of, you know, perfume down at Macy's here. We're talking pure nard, which is the kind of perfume not available in, in Israel. Most likely from India. Do you know in that world, to have something from that far away, how much that would cost? Over a year's wages. What's a year's wages, the average American? I think I saw him to pay like 50000 or something. I don't know. Whatever it is. It's tens of thousands of dollars, this thing. This isn't just any ordinary thing that she uses. Why didn't you grab the olive oil? You know, why'd you have to grab that alabaster jar? You know, most of the commentators believe that that was probably a family heirloom passed on from generation to generation. Why? Because you don't find something that expensive in an ordinary Jewish home. That doesn't, you don't, you find that in palaces. Pure nard? No. You got any $50,000 bottles of perfume laying around your houses? Maybe you guys do. Maybe we don't in my house. But of all the things, let's assume the commentators are right. It is a family heirloom passed around. What are you using that for? You got any family heirlooms, anybody? Passed down? I, I don't really, but one thing I've, I have is I still have all my sports cards from the 70s. And, uh, and some of them are actually very valuable. And, but they're priceless to me I, because I'm not planning on selling them. They're, they're, you know, they're an heirloom, essentially. So can you imagine if Leroy came over to my house next week and he grabs my, my Nolan Ryan and uses that as a coaster for his drink? I'd be like, dude, what, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Or you've got a priceless you know, quilt that your great-great-grandmother made and someone uses it to wash their face or something. Why that? Why not pick something else? Why that? And that's a good question. Why that? Don't miss it. Mary picked the very best thing she had to give to Jesus. She was not like David says at one point. I'm not going to give God my second best, Cain and Abel. I'm going to give the best that I have to him. Even when it's extravagant, not even reasonable or practical. Because he's worth everything. So Jesus commends her. Leave her alone. She's done a beautiful thing. The poor you're always going to have. That, and, but you're not always going to have me. But he's, he's not saying, I don't want you to take care of the poor. Poverty's going to be here until Jesus returns and makes all things right. He's saying it's about priority. There's something bigger here right now. And that bigger thing is the one who's going to solve poverty when all time is done. And I'm only here for a short time. So for right now, this is the best use of this. Because it's an investment into that. It, 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 not an investment. It is a amen, if you will. That, that this is the one. This is the one who's going to bring about the reconciliation of all things, including the end of poverty in the new earth and the new heaven. 
And so in this time, this is the exact right thing to be doing. She's probably wondering, did I do the right thing with the reaction? You did the right thing. Not only that, but he says, she, she poured this on me beforehand to prepare for my burial. Now, did, did Mary know that, oh, he's going to be buried, and, and because he'll be crucified as a criminal, they won't allow him to be prepared like a normal Jewish body and perfumed and all that, so, so I'll do it now. Did she figure all that out? I don't think so. I think she just is overcome with love spontaneously, and here's the one I owe everything to, and I'm going to pour on him the very best I got. And yet Jesus says, guess what? This little random, spontaneous act is actually going to be used in the purposes of God in a much greater way than Mary thought. It's actually going to prepare me for my burial. And I thought that was encouraging. Because think about some of the small things that we tend to do here and there prompted by the Spirit of God. And in that moment, it doesn't seem like a big deal. Maybe telling somebody, you know, you're of amazing worth in God's sight in a restaurant because the Holy Spirit prompts that. And then you walk away and you think, I just said something nice. And then you find out in heaven, that person's life got changed in that moment. So don't, don't disregard even the smallest impulses of the Spirit. Because God can take your little offering of a couple fish and bread and use them for a much greater purpose than you ever imagined. Every offering to him has the potential to be huge in his kingdom. And Jesus is seeing the big picture. As we see in verse 9 as well, because he says, Truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Two cool things there. First of all, he just said, I'm going to be buried. He's been telling me, everyone, I'm going to be killed. No, one's, no one believes it or paying attention. They still think he's coming to establish the great kingdom in Jerusalem. And, but he's saying, I'm going to be buried. But look what he says here. He says, wherever the gospel is preached, the UN Gelion, the good news. What's the good news? Jesus Christ lived died for our sins, was buried, and then was raised again on the third day and ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father and he will come again to judge all people and establish his kingdom. That's the good news. That's what Jesus is referring to. What does that mean? He knows he's going to be buried, but what else does he know? He's going to be raised. And the only reason he's willing to go through the cross and, and the burial is because he's trusting that his Father will vindicate him. Because he has no sin. He will be justified through his resurrection. He will be validated. He believes that. And he knows it already. So Jesus walks through this life. While everyone is looking at this woman from the perspective of this moment, based on the cultural norms and the societal religious norms we've established in this place, Jesus is looking at things from a whole different kingdom perspective. And it changes everything. Give you an example of this, and I got permission to share this, but I want you're going to hear it in more detail at the annual meeting. There's a woman in this church named Sue Davis. She's down taking care of our babies right now. She got fired this week. She works at Starbucks. 24 mutual employees. God put it on her heart to extravagantly love them. So she put together and made in her own time, going down to Joanne Fabrics, buying all the stuff, she made prayer blankets for all of them. 
with little notes about God. He gave them to all the employees. Someone complained of religious harassment and she was fired. Now, see how we just reacted? Not how Sue reacted. We just reacted like the people around the table. Unjust! Who's violating my rights? Why aren't Christians being cared for in this country? That's people around the table reaction. It's not Sue's reaction. You know what Sue's reaction was? All I could think about is maybe someday, 10, 20 years down the road, the person who turned me in is going to have that blanket on their lap and be reminded how much God is in love with them. And so I, I know I served God's purpose, and I can't wait maybe in heaven to see how he's going to use that. Isn't God good? That was Sue's reaction. Do you see that difference? Are we living life just by what we think is right, by our common sense and what seems reasonable and rational? Or are we living life from the perspective Jesus is? The gospel's real. The kingdom is, is here. The spirit of God is in us. He's with us. We are on the winning side. It changes everything. And your whole approach to people, circumstances, everything, when you approach life from the kingdom perspective instead of the temporal. What I love about this passage so much is that Mary, Mary, I believe she was prompted by the Holy Spirit, although the text doesn't say it. But this is Mary's only opportunity to show her love like this, right? Think about it. Now, she doesn't know this, but Jesus is just a couple days going to be hanging on a cross. In two days, he's hanging on a cross. Does Mary know that? She has no idea what the timetable is. This is her only opportunity to extravagantly love Jesus, and she doesn't miss it. And I wonder, Lord, sometimes... Am I in tune with you so that when there's an opportunity, I don't hesitate. But the Spirit of God within me, because I'm so in tune, I, I, yes, Lord, I'm not going to miss this opportunity. I hope we don't miss those moments. Opportunities come in good places and good ways and in bad ways. Because there's another opportunity that's taken advantage of in our passage this morning too. Verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this, and they promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Remember I told you earlier, verses 1 and 2, the religious leader said, oh, not a good time during the festival to arrest Jesus. No, we're going to have to wait till after unless an opportunity arose. And now, right here, right before the Passover, an opportunity arises. Someone in the inner circle is willing to hand Jesus over, to bring them right. Remember, there's 250,000 worshipers all over the place. Who knows where Jesus is? What if we grab the wrong guy? These Roman soldiers, or uh, even, uh, they don't know who Jesus is. But all these people, 
And now it's done. So listen, we got it. But now they've got an inner circle guy who's willing to take them in the dead of night with no one around in the middle of nowhere. Safely arrest him. They have an opportunity. And guess what? They don't miss it. We'll give you money. This is great. We're protecting Israel by taking this man in. And now what a contrast, isn't it? Do you see the contrast between Judas and Mary? I think Mark doesn't name Mary because he wants to bring out the contrast between the two. You've got Judas, someone known by name, inner circle, one of the 12, right? And then you have this unnamed woman, random, anonymous, who notices her. I'll tell you who notices her. Jesus notices her. Because she is willing to pour out her love. Where Judas is following Jesus just for what he can get out of it. And when he's all about money, and when he sees this waste of over a year's wages, he's like, okay, this, I thought Jesus was going to come be king and I'm on the winning side and man, I'm going to be living high. No, that does not look that that's happening. So I've had enough of this guy. Let me go to where I can get ahead the way I want to. Judas is following Jesus just for what he can get from him. Mary follows him because of her love and gratitude for him. Two very different kinds of following. Where are we this morning? Where are we this morning? I love this picture of her, the way she extravagantly loves. And it reminds me of this book that I've been reading called Love Does, and I think I mentioned it recently. And um, I, just to let you know, I, you know, I don't agree with everything in this book, but just because of that, I don't not look at it. There's lots of good in that book, and you should read every book that way with discernment. But there's a lot of good in this book. And one thing this book does, Love Does, is brings home this important point. Oh, in verse 8, it says she did what she could. Look at what it actually says in the Greek. What she had, she did. What she had, that's literal Greek. Now, that doesn't make sense in English. That's why translators change it around. She did what she could is what my translation says. The literal Greek is what she had, she did. She didn't consider. She didn't think about. She didn't ponder. and put, She did. Love doesn't just sit there and think about and dream. It does. We don't love God just by studying him. We love him by obeying him, by walking in him. What she had, she did. I love she did. Not even she gave. She did. She moved. Love, when it's true, will move. Not just stay in its safe little place. And she was willing to do that. And that's what this book is, is about is, we as Christians, are we willing to move by the old hymn, take my life and let it be, at the impulse of thy love, Lord, at the impulse of thy love? Are we willing? Because sometimes it'll take us to places we wouldn't choose. And he tells a story in there. And, and, it, and not only that, but it'll often be in extravagant ways that go beyond, you know, what is the, the norm for expressing love. He tells a story in there about this young man named Ryan. I love this story. Bob and his wife owned a house on waterfront, really beautiful house, and there's a walkway along the waterfront, and people walk it all the time, and they wave to people. And one day, this young man was going down the walkway, and he stopped, and he was just staring at them as they sat on their porch. And so Bob and his wife are looking. So they wave, and then he waves, and then he just keeps staring. 
So they said, well, come on up. So Ryan came up, and they started talking. And Ryan said, I just love your house. And you know, I, I, I got a girlfriend, and I'm going to ask her to marry me. And could I ask her to marry me here on your property? And now Bob doesn't even know this guy. And he was like, I love this audacity. And I said, absolutely, sure, why not? Yeah, go ahead. Oh, thank you. And he ran away because he was floating away. A few days later, they see Ryan walking down the path, and he comes up again. He goes, you know, I was thinking more about that. Would it be okay? Like, could you, could you, like, give us dinner on your porch before I ask her to marry me? And he's like, this guy's amazing. And then he says, and I was starting to tap into when, when I was engaged, you know, seeking after my wife and just how engaged my heart was, and I wanted to go overboard. And so I just was going to go. I said, sure. A few days later, he comes back. This is all true. And he says, you know, actually, would it be okay if my friend served the dinner? He's like, oh, sure. Like, how many? He goes, 20? <laughs> He's like, 20 strangers in my house serving my food to someone sitting on my... Oh, sure, why not? This is great. And he leaves. A few days later, he comes back. Would it be okay if we had... If, could you put speakers on the porch? Because maybe it'd be nice to dance after dinner, don't you think, before I ask her? Yeah, I think that's a good idea, Ryan. Sure, we'll have speakers. Okay. Then just a few days before the actual day he's going to ask her to marry him, he comes back again one more time. Do you have a boat? <laughs> Bob goes, uh, yeah. Do you mind if I take the boat out and ask her to marry me on the water? And he's like, of course, sure. I, we've gone this far. Why not? Go ahead. So then the big day came, and Ryan and his girlfriend came down the, the pathway. They came up to the house, and, and his girlfriend you know, said to him, what, what are you doing? Why are we walking into this house? And she gets there, and there's the table. What? And they sit down, and then out come their friends, 20 of their friends serving them. And then the music started, and they danced. Then they went down to the boat, and they got on the boat. And get this, as they went out, Ryan had one more thing planned Bob didn't know about. As they got out into the middle of the water on the other shore, Ryan had 50 other friends all lined up spelling out, will you marry me on the other shore? With candles at twilight. And as she said yes, Bob decided to join in the fun. He had a surprise that Ryan didn't know about. Around the corner, just as he said yes, came a Coast Guard firefighter boat, which launched off all its wa uh, water cannons over their boat as they kissed. <laughs> What's the point of all that? The point is simply this. True love can't help but pour out. It can't help but pour out. And it wants to pour out extravagantly. When it's all in, it wants to pour out everything. Don't forget that this story Jesus is telling is not far removed in our text from what he saw in the temple. Do you remember the last thing Jesus commented on in the temple? Anybody? That poor widow with two little pennies. Why was it so precious to Jesus? Because it was all she had to live on. Holding nothing back. True love holds nothing back. True love is desperate to pour out completely. Here's my main point from all of this this morning. True lovers seek to give what they have versus taking what they can get. That's true in marriage, 
that's true in relationships. That's true with God. True lovers seek to give what they have versus taking what they can get. Don't miss it. Judas and Mary are, are meant to be contrasted. And each of us has to say, where, do I, where am I in that? Am I more in this because of what I'm getting from God? Or am I in this fully? You can have anything, Lord. Sue Davis, you can have my job, Lord. Absolutely, joyfully. Where are our hearts this morning? Are they like Mary's? Here's what I want to do just to wrap up with the time we have left. I want to talk about two marriages. One is the physical marriages in this room. There's a number of us who are married here, and marriage on earth is meant to be a picture of Jesus' relationship with his church, bride and groom. We're a picture of that. Our marriages matter as a statement to the world of God's love for his people. So if you're married, I'd like to invite you. We are setting aside a day, Saturday, February 8th, from 10 to 4 in the morning for something called Fit Marriage. It used to be Fit Newlyweds. We did it with just the newlyweds, but it's been so good, we decided why not open up to all the marriages. So if you're married, I invite you to come that day. We're going to spend the whole day talking about love language. Now, many of you say, I already did that. It's like what Mark said. It's not about talking, the, the understanding, you know, learning the doctrine of the love, well, the, doctrine, well, the, the truth about love languages. It's about applying it. <laughs> And that day is going to be about how can we apply this, this, this extravagant love on each other that gives instead of gets. That's at the very heart of marriage. And it matters. So if those of you who are married, would you please think about setting that day aside? Well, I'm more about to say that next week. For the rest of us, once you said yes to Jesus, he became your eternal spouse. You realize that. He's your spouse. And we are called to love him and submit to him like the wife does to her husband and complete Ephesians 5 with everything, nothing held back. And he is a faithful lover. So what is Jesus's? I got to think about this. What are, what's Jesus's love language? And Lord, why don't I ever think of that? I'm always thinking about the prayer request you're not fulfilling. But why aren't I thinking about what's your love language? Can I do something for Jesus instead of always asking you to do something for me? Him to do something for me? And so I got to think about it, and I think it's acts of service, which is because the words that Scripture says, if you love me, you'll obey me, okay? Serve him submissively. You'll love him in that. But I also think his other love language is quality time. He loves quality time. But we live busy lives, don't we? This week I got a, uh, from Fuller Seminary, I got this uh, little write-up of spiritual practices for busy lives. And I'll just put it here. It's a bunch of ideas for how in the midst of our busy lives, without adding more guilt, as if love is obligation, more guilt on us, how can we in the course of our regular everyday lives give him quality attention? What I want to do is, is encourage us to, to give him extravagant attention, to give him our attention. Isn't that what quality time's all about? I'm fully attentive to you right now. That's what quality time's all about. It's not being in the same room. It's I'm fully attentive to your heart right now. So I'd like to do that as we close by having us just, would you close your eyes for a moment?
very first thing, just keep your eyes closed, the very first thing that's on this list is breathing prayer. And all it, basically, it's an, it's an ancient practice in the ancient church, early church in particular, and throughout the ages of just slowing down. We are to love God with our heart, mind, body, and strength, soul, all of it. It's all connected. You can't separate them. And so I'd just like you to, if your eyes are closed, let's give Jesus our extravagant attention right now. Forget about what's next. Forget about the rest of the day, the snow, any of that. And as you focus your heart and your mind on the presence of God, become aware of your breathing. God has given you that breath. He's given you that breath to praise Him. You don't have to do this, but I would encourage you to think about joining me as I close with just a breathing prayer. As I breathe, I pray. So I breathe in deeply and say something like, in Jesus, and as I breathe out, I belong to you. Breathe in, in Jesus, and out, I belong to you. Give him your strength, soul, mind, heart. Focus all of it on him. Love you, Lord Jesus. Jesus, we love you. I belong to you. Jesus, I belong to you. Jesus, I belong to you. In Jesus, I belong to you. Let that truth sink into your heart. Father, thank you that you're not hurried at your throne. You're not tapping your watch saying, I got things to do. Can you hurry it up? And you're also not frustrated when all we have is a five-second breathing prayer. You don't measure love in those ways. Father, would you help us to not hold back our love to you? Whether it's in the quiet like this, giving you our extravagant attention, or whether it's in a boisterous worship, or whether it's in a moment of obedience and losing my job. Help us, Lord, to get that bigger picture. To love you all we have, holding nothing back. Help us to be these kinds of worshipers, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'd like one of these handouts, they're up here. Encourage you to keep walking with the king. Pursue his agenda. Let's walk with him.